0: Good morning and welcome again to this service here from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. Lovely to add my welcome to the one you've already received. My name is Hamish. I'm not actually part of the regular church family here in St. Peter's. I serve as the assistant minister just down the road and across the water in St. Andrews. But it's a great joy to have been with you for these weeks as we've carried on working through the Sermon on the Mount. And we've come to this section, chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, where Jesus continues to focus our gaze at the very centre of what we're living for, And why? So it's a wonderful place to be. I hope you feel there's nowhere else you'd rather be. It's a great privilege to hear God's word together. We've heard it as it's been read. Let me pray now and ask for God's help as we hear it preached to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the fact that you are a speaking God. Thank you that this question of what we are to live for, one which our world asks and answers in so many different ways, you answer for us here. Father, we pray that we would listen to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that truly as he speaks through your word, would your spirit shape our hearts, help us to desire to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, fix our gaze on that which cannot perish, spoil or fade, and unite our hearts, we pray, in undivided devotion to God as our soul master. So, Father, Son, and Spirit, deal powerfully with us now, we ask it, in the name of Christ. Amen. I wonder what you have been making of the Sermon on the Mount, as you've been reading it, and as we've been thinking about it as a church family over these last few weeks. It struck me afresh uh, how beautiful and attractive the life of the disciple is as Jesus portrays it. He's been teaching of the Inward attitude and the outward behavior of one who is a child of the Father in heaven, of one who is committed to following Jesus in his own perfect life of righteousness, as we trust in his law fulfilling life and death and resurrection. Along with it being beautifully attractive, it is of course challenging. Uh, It's a standard that so often we fall short of, to to live a life of perfection as God our Father is perfect in heaven. And it's got me thinking in terms of both its beauty and its challenge of uh, of a wanted poster, especially through the language of the reward that that runs right through chapter 6 as we've been seeing. A wanted poster is probably familiar to you from Westerns or Robin Hood, which is basically a medieval Western. You'll know it well. The poster goes up with a picture of the person on it and saying wanted, and then the amount of reward, the sum of money that will be given. And basically, the more notorious or dangerous, or in the case of Robin Hood, virtuous a person is, the greater the reward that will be attached. And there's a sense in which this morning, in verses 19 to 24, we have a a wanted poster of the Christian life, a description of what the inward life of the believer is to be, of the attitudes and desires that we are to have, and of the staggering reward, the eternal reward that is on offer for the one who lives this way. And chapter 6, verse 19, signals the beginning of the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. And we see the gaze of Jesus focused tightly now onto questions of how we relate to the material world around us. Consider money in these verses, and then next week the, the wider things of the world that we need and that we think we need to flourish. And what we'll see is that even as the gaze tightens, as Jesus, the master cameraman of the soul, zooms in even more closely on certain fine grained aspects of our life, we'll see that the characteristics of the kingdom person remain exactly the same as they have done all through the sermon. The believer is to be oriented wholly towards God in heaven, it's sharply countercultural to the world around us. And so my prayer this morning is that just as we will be challenged again, I'm sure, as we see how far short we fall of what Jesus describes, we will be drawn and attracted to this way of living in the world. You see, Jesus will take us from our hearts, the very essence of our beings, through to our gaze, the way we view the world around us, to the question of our devotion to God. So we're going on something of a, a deep dive journey with Jesus this morning. We begin in verses 19 to 21. Uh, The first characteristic on the wanted poster is a heavenly heart. Now, verses 19 to 21 are key verses because they do a couple of things. Uh, They close off the section that Jesus has just been teaching verses 1 to 18, and they introduce the next section that he's going to be teaching now. They round out the principles he's been laying down and give a very sharp statement, just like chapter 6, verse 1 did, of everything that is to follow. In that sense, the Sermon on the Mount is a little bit like uh, uh, the Roman military formation, the Testudo, the Tortoise. I don't know about you, my first introduction to Roman tactics were the Asterix books. And the Testudo is that one where the Roman legionaries would overlap their shields in front and on top so that they could be impervious from all attacks up until the point when asterisks and Oblix would plow through them merrily. The sermon is like a gospel testudo. Each part overlaps with the other, fitting together beautifully such that not even a a juiced-up gall could break it apart. So verses 19 and 21 look backwards. You see, Jesus has insisted throughout chapter 6, and here's a bit of a summary if you've not been with us or maybe just useful to to clarify what we've been saying. Jesus has insisted that the true motivation for practiced righteousness, that's the phrase of chapter 6, verse 1, is to be a desire to please the Father in heaven and not to impress people around us. We're to be focused on God in heaven and not the world. In giving to the poor, In praying to the Father, in fasting, the disciple is not to look for the approval of man. Because if they do, Jesus says, they have received their reward already. Like a sugar rush, the approval of people can be real, it can make you feel good, but it will not last and it will simply leave you craving the next hit. In contrast, the believer is to serve God, knowing that from him comes their reward in heaven. And that's how these verses sum up what we have seen already, therefore. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You see, the approval of man is the sort of treasure that is earthbound. It's only of this world. It's the sort of treasure that can be consumed oh so easily, can't it? The approval of people comes and goes and and flickers and fades. The approval of man is a treasure that can be stolen. So in every way it is passing, it's ephemeral, it's, it's insubstantial. In contrast, the inward greater righteousness that is lived out, focused on a good father in heaven, who is the almighty and holy God, depends utterly on him for its every need, as we saw in the Lord's Prayer last week. And it's this attitude that is focused not on earth, but on heaven, It's focused not on earthly reward, but on heavenly reward. And as a result, a reward that is totally incorruptible. So we could easily say right here, pressing pause, that verses 19 to 21 do refer generally to the whole Christian life. For our desire should be to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness in all that we do. And so store up treasure in heaven rather than on earth. But these verses transition us into the next chunk, where Jesus starts to speak specifically of money and the things of this world. And, and that note of money runs right through this mini section to the massively blunt summary of verse 24. I mean, the language of treasure itself clues us in that Jesus is starting to think of money here. I think of all the different ways our culture might speak of, of oh-so-desirable riches, loot and dosh, dough, moolah, bread. I mean, lots of different words, and treasure is one of them. The inner pirate in us all resonates with treasure. Uh, The fact that money is in view is emphasized also by the dangers that face earthly treasure. It's not only moth and rust, but also thieves. And it is those dangers that Jesus uses to underscore the sheer folly, the sin, actually, of laying up for ourselves treasures on earth. Because the two things that mark out earthly treasure emphasize the fact that they pass away and fade. I mean, the first reality Jesus puts his finger on is that earthly treasure can be destroyed. You can see that there in verses 19 to 21. And the destruction is that it can be consumed or corrupted. Uh, both moth and rust are arch-consumers. And the moth, of course, it is that. Uh, we might think it a bit strange that Jesus would call a moth a, a danger to treasure. But actually in ancient cultures, clothes and fabrics were great sources of wealth and revenue, even currency. And actually it's not that dissimilar today. Uh, just down the road, we've got the Scottish outpost of the VA. You could go there or down to London and see hugely valuable clothes, fabrics, heirlooms of great price. Might be true for you as a family as well. Uh, we might have family heirlooms, christening robes, suits. Uh, in my own family's case, we, we had a, a kilt, a lovely kilt, my dad's kilt. Uh, he wore it when he was a boy. I wore it when I was a boy. My brother wore it when he was a boy. And the hope was that our eldest son, Alexander, would wear it when he was a boy. In fact, the age he is now. Uh, but a few years ago, when we went to the cupboard to take the kilt out, the moths had got at it. The, the larvae had done their work, and they'd munched through the, the lovely, vibrant McDonald tartan so that there were gaps everywhere. You see, moths destroy earthly treasure, Jesus says. It's true, too, of rust, that eater of metal. The word for rust is one that that speaks more broadly of consumption and corruption generally. So rust, when it's applied to metal, but we could also think of mildew, of rot, of, of decomposition. And no pirate's hoard, Jesus says, will last forever because it will be eaten by moths, it will be ground down by rust, and notice if it's not eaten, it's nicked. From the theft of the living to grave robbers through the ages, whether you do it with style and a hat on your head like Indiana Jones or not, earthly treasure gets stolen. You see, Jesus's point that he absolutely hammers home is that all treasures of the earth ultimately go the way of all the earth. Consumption, corruption, and destruction. Supremely true, of course, of the hoarder, him or herself, you can store up and accumulate all the treasure of earth that you want. But if it doesn't get destroyed, you will. Because you cannot keep it when you go. Think even of the internet, that repository of knowledge that can seem so permanent. You know, it'll one day go as well. A friend of mine recently moved to Australia to go to theological college down in Sydney. He lost all of his files, including photos because he'd put them on one memory stick. And a friend of mine jokingly said, but brother, you should store up your treasure in heaven, in the cloud. And, and he was joking, of course, but even that will one day pass. The servers will go, and nothing will be left. And that, then, is why Jesus is so emphatic. Do not lay up treasure in heaven for yourselves. Do you see that? Don't do it, verse 19. I mean, the Bible's really clear that, that saving is not wrong, that financial prudence and good stewardship is wise. Jesus' point is not about that. He is saying that the centre of our confidence, that which we live for and where our heart is, is not to be the treasures of this world. No, we should rather, Jesus says, lay up for ourselves, verse 20, treasures in heaven. Where God is using our resources for him and his kingdom... For that treasure is absolutely inviolable. Notice that it's no less real than earthly treasure. Jesus isn't saying one is spiritual, which you can't kind of really touch or feel, and the other is real and solid. No, both are are solid, as it were, but only one will last. And in that sense, the heavenly treasure is actually more real than the earthly one. So uh, the larvae of moths, pesky tiniola biselliella, I don't actually know that, I looked it up, I'm not that much of a geek. Well, if they are in the new creation, who knows, we look forward to finding out, we can take it that they will not eat our treasure. For the kingdom of God in its fullness when Christ returns is not a place of corruption or destruction. There are no thieves who can or would break down the doors of the heavenly father's vault to steal it is a fort knox we might say of perfect joy and peace a place where all investments are eternally secure and so it is the only safe place the only wise place the only right place in which to actively lay up treasures jesus would say to the disciple today maybe you who is sinking all their effort and resources into this world why It cannot last. This earth is passing away. The things of this earth are passing away. The people of this earth are passing away. And here Jesus is showing us the way to true treasure. X marks the spot, and it is in heaven. You might have noticed how unafraid Jesus is of appealing to reward in describing the Christian life. It can be something we slightly shy away from. And there is a key reason for that, because of the sting in the tail of verse 21. Let me read that again. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, to live for heavenly riches is not just wise, it is the true way of discipleship. We read verse 21 and we might think that it could easily be the other way round, that what we love will determine what we invest in. But Jesus, insightfully, do you see, flips it around and he nails the human heart in the process. For what we invest in, where we put our resources, supremely here our money, but but all that we are, where we stick that, well, that will draw our hearts with it. All through the sermon, Jesus has been concerned with our hearts, an internal attitude of humility towards God and others hearts that are poor in spirit that hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God that greater righteousness we've seen that begins with and expresses itself with love for God not hypocritically towards other people and Jesus takes that kingdom focus and applies it to money for our hearts are so often drawn to the wrong place and the wrong treasure We meet people who invest in getting as much money for themselves as possible. And what do we see? Well, they will always want a little bit more. For their heart is now with the accumulation of wealth in this world. We might meet people who invest supremely in the earthly security of their family. The home, the education, the clothes, the cars, the schooling. And we find that they will always be anxious for their family, wondering if they have done enough, always feeling the need to do more and never being able to rest and to entrust them to the Lord. We might meet people who invest in pleasure, in good holidays, in fine drinks, in fun living, in great experiences. And what do we see? Well, we see that their heart will always be wanting that next experience the next gadget, the next bit of stuff. We, we meet people who invest in their careers, to climbing the ladder, to being thought well of by those who employ them, to being excellent, whether that's in academics or in finance or in whatever it is you turn your hand to. And what do we see? People whose hearts are now tied to that ladder. We see our hearts, who we are at our very core, Uh, That will include our desires, but also our wills, our priorities, and our actions. Our hearts follow our treasures. And wouldn't it be wonderful, if we're listening to this as, as Christian people who are committed to the kingdom of God, wouldn't it be wonderful if people could look at our bank balances, at our spending, at our use of energy, at our time, at our priorities, at our prayers and say there is someone whose heart is for God. There is someone who knows clearly that the one who is in heaven is their father. There is someone who is living all out for him, laying up treasures in heaven. Verse 21, interestingly, is is very singular. It's very personal. The the you there is, is you individually it's the singular word jesus uses and he says your where your treasure is there your heart will be also so there is an intimate appeal from jesus to us now to forget people around us to focus not even on the world around us but on the god who sees us who knows us and for whom we are to live in heaven Now, if you're following along, though, you may well be nodding and saying, yes, that is what I want, and knowing that that's how we can fall short sometimes. But you might be asking the question, well, how then? What does this sort of laying up look like? Is it just an attitude that the believer is to have, or is it more than that? Well, on the basis that the second one is always the right answer, it is more than that. And the answer is found in verses 22 to 23. Verses that at first sight seem somewhat enigmatic, possibly even a bit random. But let me read them again and we'll see what we make of them. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus essentially is saying to us that the heavenly heart is expressed in the healthy gaze. That's our second point this morning. Now, Jesus moves from the heart to the eye, which to our way of thinking may well seem strange because we tend to think of our heart as our emotions and our eyes as a means of getting data about the world. But that's not actually the case in scripture, especially in the Old Testament's view of humanity. That The heart is the seat of our emotions that which governs and expresses who we are. It's the very essence of our being. The eye, as Jesus says here, is the lamp of the body. It's that which expresses our inward desires and emotions. So the way we look on things, as revealed in our actions, expresses the priorities and treasure of our heart. So Jesus says that the heart that is set on pleasing the Father in heaven will look on life and the world in a particular way, a healthy way, a a light way. The eye, though, that is bad, that is dark, that looks on the world in a man-centered rather than a God-centered way, well, that is indicative of an earthly heart set, uh, of a mindset. I mean, the eye can also speak of that which we take in. Are we looking at things with a desire to honor God or to further ourselves? Now, that link between the eye and the heart is explicit. Places like Psalm 119, verses 9 to 16, we, we see the tight tie there is between the heart and the eye of man. And the general truth in play here is that we are to look at the world in a way that expresses a desire to serve God above all. Again, that can be true of every area of our life, but there is a tighter link here to the question of money. For the healthy eye in scripture is the generous eye. The word that is used here by Jesus for healthy is sometimes elsewhere translated as good. And the same word is used in Proverbs of the one who is generous towards others. You could look at that in Proverbs chapter 11 verse 25 or chapter 22 and verse 9. One who looks at riches and sees in earthly riches a resource for giving rather than grasping. It is the eye of one who understands that whatever they have, they have as a trust from God to be used for his kingdom and not their own. For that is the wonderful logic of God's kingdom, isn't it? We are blessed in order to be a blessing to others. The opposite of the healthy gaze, Jesus says, is the bad one of verse 23, which will lead to the whole body being full of darkness. Literally, it's where we get our phrase, the evil eye, from. It's the same word Jesus uses in the Lord's Prayer, to deliver us from evil. Here is the eye that is not just about looking at things incorrectly. Rather, it is an attitude to the world and to riches That is out of kilter with God's plans and purposes. Specifically in Matthew, it is to do with resenting the free generosity of God. Uh, Bear with me with one cross-reference that I'd love you to to just turn to. Keep your finger in Matthew 6 and just turn forwards to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 15. It's the, the parable of the vineyard where Jesus speaks of an owner of a vineyard who hires workers. You know, they're all waiting in the labor market of the town, and he gets them at different points of the day to work. And the shock of the parable is that those hired late in the day, who've worked less, are paid exactly the same as those who've done a full day's work. And the long laborers are grumbling, but the owner rebukes them. And when, in chapter 20 and verse 15, he asks them, do you begrudge my generosity? Literally, he says, do you have an evil eye because I am generous? Or actually, do you have an evil eye, the same phrase, on my generosity? It's used the same way in Deuteronomy 15 and verse 9. So let's pop back to Matthew 6 then. And we'll see that Jesus is saying both generally but specifically about money, that his followers, God's children, are to look at riches not with greedy eyes but with giving ones. Not seeing earthly treasures as things for earthly gain, like Scrooge in his, in his scrounging, but seeing them as opportunities to invest in God's kingdom, to store up heavenly treasure, to look on riches just as God himself does with generosity. And the danger, Jesus says, if one does not, if one's eye is evil and greedy, is that the lamp of the body is something that casts out darkness and not light. That should ring some bells from chapter 5. For in verses 14 to 16, the the kingdom of God, the church, is to be a, a place where the light shines before others as God's kingdom people. And part of that light shining into the darkness of the world is going to be seen in our gaze upon the things of this world. Now, there's some heavy lifting there, I know, to, to grapple with these verses. But it can lead to a simple, but I think profound question. Does the way we, you, me, individually, as households and as churches, does the way we look at the stuff of this world reflect a heavenly heart or an earthly one? How do we look at our homes? How do we look at our careers? Our food, our clothing, our holidays, our cars, our gadgets, our hopes, our fears. Now, almost all of those are good things. No quibbles there whatsoever. Jesus is not against any of them. But they are earthly things. They will pass away through moth and rust and theft and death. Do we view them as such or are they things that are exerting a light blocking influence on our hearts such that we ourselves are now stumbling around in passing darkness rather than striding in heavenly light in love and service of our father. For that's where Jesus finishes. You see we are to have heavenly hearts in our wanted poster. We're to have a healthy gaze. Ultimately, we are to have an undivided devotion to God. Now, verse 24 is what shows us that the weight Jesus lays on verses 22 to 23 is justified. Jesus is not a random teacher who just suddenly says something about the heart and the eye for fun. No, the issue is deadly serious. For the choice is stark. Stark. The heavenly heart expressed in the healthy gaze is to be a marker and anchor of undivided devotion. For verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, Jesus boils it right down for us and says in his realm... It is either God or earthly treasure. And so we now don't have any more double applications to life and to money. Just a laser-like focus on money itself. Now, it's worth being crystal clear here together. The Bible is not negative about money itself now, that is something that is a good gift of God to be used as we've seen and we could see elsewhere for his work and not our own. It is rather the love of money itself, the service of money rather than God that is the problem. That is because the life of the child of God is one of undivided radical devotion to and dependence upon God, just as we saw in the Lord's Prayer last week. And money so often, too often, functions as the great god substitute you see if our hearts by nature tend towards thinking we can do it ourselves well there is almost nothing that reinforces that tendency more than the love of money i mean very few professing christians would say i serve money rather than god gordon gecko's greed is good creed is so obviously idolatrous But the piercing gaze of Jesus here falls not on Wall Street, but on the church. And he knows that the danger is not necessarily that outright idolatry of putting money above God. Do you notice it's more subtle? It is the danger of putting money alongside God. Of saying, yes, I want God, but I also want. Want money, not serving money instead of God, but serving money as well as God. And Jesus says, in the language of devotion of slavery, that it is as foolish as a slave in the Roman era saying, Look, I belong to both Quintus over there and Caecilius over there. For slavery is exclusive. And so is the demand of our father and king on our hearts, because to serve him is to love him and is to be devoted to him. And therefore, inevitably, we must hate and despise and spurn the other who would compete for our affections. Jesus is saying you cannot have it both ways. Investing both in the bank of the earth and the bank of heaven. You can't have a healthy gaze and a bad gaze at the same time. We cannot play it both ways. But it is super easy to think that we can. Whatever age and stage we are, interestingly, whether we have lots of money or not, it is really easy to think, I want to love and follow God, I want to have a healthy gaze, but is it so wrong to want this particular career? to desire this particular comfort, to to keep this for myself just as I give some away. Where I serve and live and minister down in St. Andrews, that that is a real danger in a town so shaped by a high-achieving university and a very famous and pretty high-priced golf destination. Really easy to think we want God and we want the world. I don't presume to know all the context into which I'm speaking now. But you can think for yourself, where might we be setting the love of money alongside the love of God? Again, don't mishear me. There is real good and necessity in being prudent financially. And only you and God himself will know if a financial choice you make is driven by the kingdom of self or the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus here in love says that we must not deceive ourselves. We cannot have it both ways. Uh, one of my favorite films, a classic rewatch, is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's the best one of the canonical three Indiana Jones. I tend to pretend the fourth one didn't happen. But there's a powerful image of this desire to have cake and eat it too in the quest for the Holy Grail. If you know the film, you'll know it's, it's been the quest of Indiana's father. His whole life, it, it alienated his mother, it drove his son away, it's made him a grumpy and an obsessed old man. And at the end, spoiler, the Holy Grail is hanging there, just out of reach. It's a picture of glory and eternal life for those who are chasing it. And there's this German archaeologist who's determined to get it. She wants it, and she wants a life in the world, and, and she dies reaching for it. And then it's Indy's turn. He's seen what's happened to her, He's seen what it's done to his dad and yet it's right there and he's reaching for it and he's straining for it and he's saying, I can get it, I can get it. But his dad has realized that there is more to life than this. He's realized that his son is of more importance and so Henry Jones Sr. says, Indiana, let it go. Don't chase it. Stick with what is best. And so God the Son says to us about money, about mammon, as some translations have it, the great God of our race and our age. Let it go. Your father in heaven is better, greater, truer, more eternal. You can't have them both. You can't serve them both. To try and balance them both is to fail in the attempt. And who you have in your father is infinitely more valuable. For think of what we've seen already. He is the God who gives us our daily bread. He's the God who gives us all we have. He is the God who will guard that treasure in heaven that his people lay down. He is the God who looks at the world with supremely healthy eyes and in generous, self-giving love, sends his son to die. That we can call him father, that we can see the kingdom of God and so see money for what it is. Another gift from God's good hand and one to be used in devotion and dependence Upon him. Now, again, according to age and stage and background and present circumstance, this teaching will land on your heart and demand things of your life in different ways as you listen. Notice that Jesus isn't giving us specific ethical outboxes here. He's not saying, so therefore, go and give this proportion or therefore go and give to this charity or work or, or go and do this with your time. No, rather, what he's saying is, look, here's how you're to be oriented towards God in the world. Hearts of undivided devotion. Now go and apply that to money. As we close then, let me just sketch out three broad ways coming straight from this passage and the sermon more broadly in which we can think about our attitude to money. Three principles that will apply, I hope, to all of us. Whoever we are, And whatever we have, are we generous with the treasure which God has entrusted to us? Do we have a healthy eye? You see, Jesus assumes that his followers, as part of their kingdom lives, will be giving. You see that in chapter 6, verse 2. Not a financial target to hit in quantity, but a quality of open-heartedness and handedness that sits loose to the treasures of this world. As individuals, as households, as churches, are we laying up treasure for ourselves here or single-heartedly focused on serving God with what we have? Second, whoever we are and whatever we have is earthly treasure or heavenly treasure shaping our choices about money in life. For some listening, this is going to bite in terms of the hopes and the dreams and the choices you're making about your career, about your course of studies at university, about your next move on on property perhaps. For others, it's looking at how you use your retirement, how you use your money when you have fewer immediate family responsibilities. For others, it's, it's looking at how you live with the little money that you have and the real financial concerns that are presented to you. Again, whoever we are, are we driven by a worldly bottom line or by a heavenly goal? Finally, whoever we are and whatever we have, how do we deal with either too much money or too little? So there'll be some listening who have been given much financially. Does a comfortable bank balance lead you to spiritual complacency and to thinking that you've made it? Or rather, are you still hungering and thirsting after righteousness and just seeing what God has given you as even greater means to get on with his work in the world? You see, if your appetite has been met financially, that could suggest that your heart is being nourished too much on the treasures of this age. Let's flip it around, though. What about the very real situation that some will face where you don't have enough money? Does that make you spiritually anxious and self-regarding from a perspective of fear? Jesus knows that is a real challenge. He'll speak about it explicitly in our next section that we'll see next week. For deep anxiety over money can show that it has too great a hold on us, even if we don't have much of a hold on it. It's the wise prayer of Proverbs 30, verses 8 to 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Instead of praying for money, a better prayer is that of David in Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And even as we close on that note of undivided devotion, I take it that we realize we don't match up to the wanted poster we started with. We've looked at the criteria, looked at the reward. I don't know about you, but with this, as with other chunks of the Sermon on the Mount, I feel like I'm so readily weighed and measured and found wanting in my own strength. Too often I'm earthly minded. Too often my gaze can be bad and dark. Too often I can try and serve both masters. And we have to be honest that on our own, this poster does not apply to us. But wonderfully, it describes our Lord Jesus Christ perfectly. In every way, he fulfills this part of the law, just as he does the whole thing. And so we'll close with our gaze on him. Think, he was the one who, though rich, became poor for our sakes, that we in our poverty might become rich. He was the one who looked at the world with the ultimately healthy gaze, laying down his glory, even for the shame of the cross. He's the one who served God as his master and father to the expense of all else. Even when the devil offered him the rule and riches of the kingdoms of the world, Jesus accepted the daily bread of God's word and will, and he reigns now at his right hand. We're weighed and measured and found wanting. But Jesus is more than enough for all that we need. Let's pray through him now. Heavenly Father, in this area of money, just as in so many others, we confess our own brokenness and emptiness. We truly are jars of clay who so readily seek to store up treasures on this earth rather than in heaven. We praise you, though, for the incomparable glory of Jesus Christ, your son, and the wonderful treasure of the gospel, of our admittance into the kingdom, of our adoption into the family, of the gift of your spirit. Thank you that though we are jars of clay, we have an insurpassable treasure set within us. And we ask, Father, that we would only display that all the more, fix our gaze on Christ, By your spirit, lift our hearts to where you are in heaven and enable us as individuals and as churches, St. Peter's, St. Andrew's, the, the free church, but all who call upon your name. Help us to be those who store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Thank you that those treasures will never perish, spoil nor fade. No moth, no rust can destroy it. No thief can break in and steal from you. And help us, therefore, to live for you now, in time, in energy, in speech, and supremely here in our earthly treasure. Whether we have much or whether we have little, give us single-minded devotion to you. And put our hands to your work and to your will in this world as we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Guard us and keep us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.